This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. He is probably the most listened to voice on Wall Street. His actions followed very closely as well. We're talking about J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon. Today he was at the inauguration of the company's new headquarters in Paris. One more thing, J.P. Morgan is also upping its pay for junior bankers. I told you there was a lot of most read stories on J.P. Morgan today. Why we care and the significance of it all. Let's get into it with Bloomberg News Wall Street reporter Shanali Basik. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Jamie Dimon, right, we watch everything he does. Uh, It's like we have a tracking device on him. Um, Paris, first of all, this is a big deal as we come out of Brexit and figure out what's going to be the center of the financial universe over in Europe. Absolutely, because it, this has been a years-long story, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a matter. It and matters. And then for, some, right? And then some. <laughs> it matters for talent. It also matters for these countries. Uh, you wonder once they start to move their trading hubs, what other economic activity comes out of there? You know, last time I went to London, which was obviously well before COVID, when I was talking to all the investment banks, a lot of them were moving a lot of staff and building offices up in Paris mm-hmm. because of the big multinational corporate operations that were building, doing deals, and there was just so much activity there. So, you know, Frankfurt was the other real place. That's what I thought. The critique I've heard about Frankfurt, which is kind of funny, is that you find yourself either hiring from Deutsche Bank or you find yourself hiring your best talent in London anyways. So, you know, those that's some color on the ground for how hard it's been to pick your spots when it comes to Europe. Well, and it's interesting because it's not just J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs signed a lease in Paris for new headquarters. Uh, We've seen Bank of America opening new offices over in Paris. So we are seeing it slowly but surely being set up. Yeah, the lifestyle's really good too. The lifestyle. (laughs) I was going to say, does Jamie Dimon just want some foie gras or croissant? There's also (laughs) market share to take, right? I mean, the Mm -hmm. the French banks are certainly very big, but they're not big in the same places that J.P. Morgan is. All right, speaking of J.P. Morgan, another story about them hiking their entry-level banker pay to help combat burnout. First year analyst now being offered starting salaries $100,000. What is going on more broadly? It's not just a JP Morgan thing, is it? Not at all, though it is exciting to see for JP Morgan for many people, given that they are the biggest bank in the country. They are usually number two or three when it comes to mergers and acquisitions, competing neck and neck with Goldman Sachs in the space. More than $1.8 trillion worth of deals in less than six months it's alone. Busy. It's been a very busy industry. How much of that is SPACs? No, just kidding. Well, I, some some of it is. Yeah. Some of it is certainly SPACs, but, but they need these junior bankers to mm-hmm. get these deals done, really train up their ranks, their cheaper than senior bankers, although senior bankers are certainly moving around a lot. We see it every single day. And one president of one investment bank told me every day he's coming in to another banker who's threatening to leave. Wow. So it just gives you an idea, some color on that. Well, what's interesting too, right, Chanali, is these big banks, they invest in their investment banking hires, the folks that come in off of MBA programs and so on and so forth. They invest in them, cultivate them. They don't want them to leave. They don't. Well, you know, it's funny. Or do they? They expect 
a good amount of them to leave after some point. That's okay. the business model. You hire a ton of people. Some of them go to private equity. They become clients. Then, you know, that relationship really continues and it, it kind of feeds into itself. But the people who stay, certainly they want them to keep staying and mm-hmm. keep delivering and really grow up and become a pivotal part of that bank. Fun fact about Goldman Sachs itself is that actually about 80% of its entire talent base is millennial or younger. So that goes to show you how young and lively an investment bank is and Mm -hmm. how much their young people really matter. Okay, speaking of the banks, one more story I want to get to, and it was something we were all over last night, all the headlines about uh, quarterly dividend payouts, uh, boosting that, boosting buybacks. Morgan Stanley seemed to be a real standout there. Yeah, it certainly was. Oh. And I keep on guiding people back to what James Gorman said a couple of weeks ago. We're sitting in an embarrassment of riches. He <laughs> predicted, he was trying to tell he investors. He calls it like it is, doesn't he? He really does. And, you know, like he said, he said, okay, you want us to invest in our business? We just did two of the biggest deals since the financial crisis. So, you know, they're investing in their business. They're certainly putting money to work when it comes to clients. So they had this money after a record year to start giving back in a bigger way. Right. The commercial banks are where you start to face more political pressure on lending and balancing that with investor payouts. And do we see that kind of play out in terms of the distinction between, because I, I think I was surprised when JP Morgan passed and I thought, well, that wasn't a really big boost or anything new, right? There were some that it felt like a, meh. Well, Jamie Dimon did say that, you know, he was going to be increasing dividends. He was going to be returning more money to shareholders, but they want to be investing in that business as well. So you saw, for mm-hmm. example, JP Morgan buy, agree to I buy a FinTech that. today. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, open Invest. So it, it's something that shows you that he's willing to spend money. His, his strategy has so far been bolt on these tinier acquisitions that will add a capability to make them competitive in a particular area area and particularly tech enabled and ESG enabled areas. The big banks still pushing everybody to get back to work even though they've had an incredible year and they seem to still be doing really well. Only the biggest of the big, the smaller banks are trying to retain talent, attract more people to them. Lazard CEO in a conversation just an hour ago had told me they're going to only allow people or only require people back three days a week in North America and are trying to have that work around the world. He said it's unimaginative to believe uh, that the world can't be different after COVID. I just did a panel with CEO, same thing, that we need to think of work differently. Definitely. Industrial revolution required everybody to be in the same space. We're going through another revolution. That what you... revolution is this one? I don't know yet. We the, have to name it. The Zoom revolution? I don't know. That sounds, I don't know. The COVID revolution, unfortunately. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Thank you. We Thank went around you. Wall Street, covered it all. Shanali Basek, she is our Wall Street reporter here at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the heist issue, it's coming this week. It's a great summer read, stories that take you to places and people that will shock you, surprise you, charm you. And that includes this story, which happens to be about the perfect heist courtesy of Netflix. Let's get into it with Business Week Projects and Investigations reporter Devin Leonard sitting right next to me in our interactive broker studio, along with Business Week editor Joel Weber also sitting next to me. Uh, And as I said, both in our studio. I know, Joel, you get so excited about this issue. Heist issue is the best issue. uh, (laughs) It's the best time of of the year. year. It it is a little bit like Christmas. Christmas in almost July? Almost. Um, Yeah, so when we put this together, we we think about um, a bunch of different things, including, you know, just stories that make headlines earlier in the year. We, For instance, this copper heist that we turned into a comic in this issue um, that we also published today. But we also have to think about the cover, right? And so for the cover story, I really wanted to talk about how Netflix... um, has done a great job of perfecting the heist genre 
um, they have a show called Lupin, and um, I became, you know, a little interested and, dare I say, obsessed with I'm just going to say obsessed, it sounds <laughs> like. I mean, it's just like <laughs> if somebody else is doing heist-related content, you're like, what, what are they doing? And the star of that show, um, French uh, actor named Omar Sy, and he is extremely charismatic. I thought the show was really interesting. Of course, they were going to do a second season because the first season was so good. And I was like, when is that second season going to drop? Oh, and it turns out it's like right when we're doing our heist issue. So it all worked out perfectly. And uh, and, and Devin Leonard stepped up to write the, the cover story about Lupin and, and its star. So, so Devin, what did you learn as you uh, reported out the story? I don't know. I guess it was just it's just the you know perfect combination of this classic French story about... I think it's a character a lot of Americans don't know about, but everybody in France knows. I mean, he, he's basically... A, a mischievous sort of Gallic Robin Hood who loves to steal from from the rich and uh, Gamal, which is a you know big French uh, film and TV studio, they wanted to do sort of an updating of of uh, Lupa. I mean the upteenth you know trillionth update. And Omar C, who's really famous in in France, p- people don't know him so so well in America, even though he's played bit parts in X Men movies and Jurassic World and things like that. He, they, they went to him, Gamal, and asked him what what role he wanted to play, and uh, Omar said uh, said Lupin. But then he read a bunch of scripts, and it didn't really work. So basically, they brought in a, an English uh, uh, showrunner, a guy named George K, and he basically made the show about a guy just like Omar C. Omar C's you know parents are from Senegal, so they made they made uh, Lupin, you know, a Senegalese you know immigrant who's was obsessed the Lupin character and sort of basically became a great, you know, cat burglar and uh, heist master. Um, he's, and like, that's he's, the story, yeah. He's a lot of fun, it sounds like, right? And he's got some, like, there's not a lot of guns or anything. Like, he's got some rules about how he does it. And he kind of does it, I must feel, a little twinkle in the eye and a little smirk a little bit. Well, no, he, he, well, I, I guess as part of, that was part of the research. And that a lot of the research was actually finding out how you make a great, a great heist movie or a great heist show and then and then sort of Talking to them, you know, also just watching how they sort of followed all, you know, all the rules. So, so I mean, you have to start, you know, with, with the character that the audience likes. And Omar C is just, you know, he's just he's just totally likable. And and, and that that's this whole whole thing. As one of the directors said, he has a smile that how do you say it in English? Let you get away with murder. I mean, that's it. Yeah. But I'm bum. I also love that um, he's approached it sort of as 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 trying to be like the French version of James Bond, right? It's like, there's an enigma to that. So so what does this show accomplish for, for Netflix? Well, that was the other thing that I, that I thought was really interesting, Joel, was, was that, um, you know, just, just looking at where Netflix was at, at that moment, you know, in January, they'd had this crazy year in, in the pandemic. They added 37 million subscribers. I, you know, that's you know, it's almost a 20% increase. So... And, and, at this, and at the same time, during 2020, they'd had all these shows already in the pipeline line coming out. They had a bunch of new shows that were just setting records because everyone's just sitting around watching Netflix, you know, and ordering pizza or, or you, you know, whatever. So, so you know. I had the, some Saturdays on the couch in my jam. Yeah, I'm just yeah. Put it out there. So the, the, the Queen's Gambit, you know, you know I see 60, 62 million you know, people watched it in, in its first four weeks. 
Bridgerton sets the all-time record Which, for I a new... I don't think I've heard of Bridgerton. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you crushed it. that weekend Watched one. it twice. Yeah. Right, right. It, it, you know, that, that, what's, uh, that was uh, 82 million people People watched it. So then, but by the time, by the time Lupin, or sorry, January rolls around, they're all of a sudden, whoa, they don't have as many new, new shows. But they did have Lupin, that comes on. That's a French show, but... But even even in America, it's the first you know French language show to to hit you know hit Netflix's top ten shows in the U.S. Seventy six people, seventy excuse me, million people that watched it you know all around the world. So that you know basically Netflix, in effect, you know they they ran short in shows. They had this huge audience, and they popped this show out there, and everybody watched it, and everybody loved it. And I also think it's important to keep in mind here. How global Netflix is, right? Yeah. Like yep. the bulk of their business, right, actually is, is international. So for them to have a hit, like a true, a true global hit, and lean exactly. into also an international studio, I mean, it speaks to a little bit of of how Netflix Netflix makes its magic, right? Well, no, I think that's that's their, you know, what what they think is their edge now, so that they're producing shows in other countries that can, you know, be hits, you know, can be authentic, you know, in those markets, but be global hits too. And, you know, I, I think that what they would say was Disney Plus isn't doing that or they're trying to do it or, you know, Amazon Prime isn't, isn't there yet, but but we're, we're there. So I think, it, and that's where they have to grow because, you know, as people kept telling me, almost everybody in America who's, you know, who's, who's going to subscribe to Netflix already has, so. Well, and it's interesting too, we were talking to Tara LaChapelle just about how Netflix is really causing all these other content providers having to go out and buy content and that Netflix just is really good about bringing in directors and actors to create it for them rather than having to spend billions and billions on buying another company. And it just shows that they do it and they do it really well. Well, I mean, in this case, they did work with a you know local production company, but they brought in, you know, George K was the guy. They brought in. He he worked right. for for Netflix before on mm-hmm. Criminal. Uh, Louis Leterrier, who directed the first three three episodes. I don't know. If they brought him in, but he's done a lot of work for Netflix. So so they're definitely involved in, in a lot of this stuff. They're they're not just buying stuff. So you you really dove into the the heist genre. <laughs> Tell me just to close. What what's the secret of a good heist? And really quickly, like twenty seconds. The secret of the heist is that there has to be a heist within the heist. The heist has to go wrong <laughs> so so that you can really kind of see what the, what the characters are, you know are really like. And actually, the heist goes wrong. For, it has to go wrong for the heist to go right. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of rules in that story. All right, good stuff. Uh, really appreciate it, Devin Leonard. He's projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek. It's the cover of the issue, right? Of the heist issue, Joel Weber, our editor of the magazine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So you might recall the Bloomberg Big Take that we talked about yesterday. It was about the last and only foreign scientist in China's Wuhan lab speaking out and painting a very different picture of the Wuhan Institute, someone who has been out there early on when it comes to looking at that institute and China's role when it comes to COVID-19. We, he's been talking to us, he's been on 60 Minutes and talking to a lot of other folks and writing about it to get to the bottom of the origin of COVID-19. And just yesterday, releasing as part of a group an open letter entitled Call for a Comprehensive Investigation of the Origin of SARS-CoV-2, if possible with Chinese government participation. We welcome back Jamie Metzl, Senior Fellow at Atlantic Council, former director of the U.S. National Security Council 
at the State Department and on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, founder and chair of the Global Movement One Shared World and special strategist for Wisdom Tree. He is on the phone in New York City. Jamie, it is good to have you back with us. You are part of a group that have put out another letter. I think this is the fourth open letter when it comes to the virus and in particular finding out China's role in all of this. Tell us about this latest letter. And this is really building on some of what came out of the G7 meeting. Exactly. So thank you so much, uh, Carol. Really happy to be be back with you. So yes, this is our fourth open letter. We're a community of experts from uh, around the world. Uh, And what we've done is we've welcomed the statement that was put out by G7 leaders earlier uh, this month. It was calling for a next phase of what, what's called the, the WHO, World Health Organization, convened joint study. Um, uh, and what we said is we welcome that call, um, but for that to happen, it needs to, we need a credible process. And because the first phase of that study, which was joint between an independent committee and their Chinese government-affiliated counterparts, was not credible or legitimate. The Chinese government had a veto over who got to participate. Um, they, they didn't share information. They had limited access to the raw data. There were lots of big structural problems. We said is for this next phase to go forward, it has to be legitimate. There, there has, it has to be a full, comprehensive investigation. We laid out what the terms would need to be. And we say we believe it's reasonable to give China... 60 days to accept those terms and to have full investigators and empowered investigators on the ground in China able to do a full audit of their labs and do the the full investigation that's required. But that if China should continue to refuse to prevent the kind of full investigation that's needed, um, then we have to establish an alternative process, probably not through the World Health Organization but through some other means, and whether it's G7 or OECD or, or, or something else. Um, because one thing is clear, um, we can't give China a veto over whether or not we investigate the worst pandemic in a century. And I would assume, Jamie, that you would feel that if, conversely, the virus had started here, you would expect the United States equally, or whether it was in London or whether it was uh, somewhere over in Europe, that they would need to do the same thing, basically cooperate, collaborate on a full investigation. Absolutely. I mean, it would, I mean, I would have this equal position. I mean, it's just if this happened in the United States, we would demand it. Everyone in America would demand it. We wouldn't need foreign countries and outsiders to yeah. say we need a full investigation. If, if we had t- you know, 10 million people dead or 600,000 dead, uh, and we thought that there was some possibility it was connected to a nuclear accident or a bio, biological uh, accident, we would demand that if there was some any other country in the world. If this happened in Congo and the, the Congolese government said, oh, no, you can't do an investigation, we would, we would go berserk. And so it's just totally unacceptable uh, that uh, China, one, is doing a massive cover-up from the beginning until now, And two, that it's preventing the kind of international investigation that's in everybody's interest, including everybody in China, other than maybe a small number of people at the very top of the Communist Party. I mean, Jamie, this is getting to the heart of really understanding how COVID came to be. And I know 
everybody in this audience has done a lot of reading about it. I certainly have. I feel like there's been a lot in the last week. Our own Michelle uh, Cortez, you know, catching up with the Western scientist, the last and only foreign scientist who was in the lab, who spoke out uh, and gave her experience of what she saw. But we want to know how this came to be, correct? So that we can prevent it from happening again in the future. That's exactly right. I mean, when a plane crashes, we try to understand what happened because we know that's a serious risk. Uh, Here we have this terrible pandemic. We need to understand how it started. Jamie, it's like, I mean, there's a good chance that there isn't going to be Chinese collaboration or cooperation at this point. So what then as a recourse should the United States or the Western world, uh, European uh, nations, what then ultimately can they do to help get to the bottom of this? Yeah, so we write about that in the letter. But what we're saying is even without Chinese participation, Chinese government participation, there's a huge amount of information that is uh, available. There's genetic information. There's information even in U.S.-based Uh, U.S. government-funded not-for-profits like EcoHealth Alliance. The scientific journals have information. Um, There's a lot that that can be done, but we need a concerted international, national and international process um, for pulling all of that data together. I mean, obviously, it's better if China participates and China has uh, the full transparency that we would like but again, we can't give them a veto. If they want to try to, if they want to continue to carry out this cover up, we shouldn't be part of it. We should do everything within our power mm-hmm. um, to get to the bottom of things. And maybe we can. There's a reasonable chance of success. We've made a huge amount of progress over the last year and a half, right. even without any meaningful access in China. All right. Good to get an update from you on this. Jamie Metzl, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, former National Security Council official, founder and chair of the Global Movement, One Shared World, joining us on the phone from New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. One of the hardest hit industries during the pandemic, no doubt about it, was the cruise industry, which is slowly getting clearances to get back uh, ships out to sea. We talked about this on air yesterday about Royal Caribbean successfully launching its first revenue generating sailing out of the United States this past weekend. Here with more in the industry and his company specifically is Richard Fain. He's chairman and CEO of Royal Caribbean Cruises. He is on the celebrity edge in Costa Maya, Mexico. That's where they are docked. And I'm a little jealous, Richard. Well, you should be. It's wonderful here. <laughs> I am very, very... Well, thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, so tell me, uh, share with us how things are going, how the launch went, and what kind of capacity are you seeing coming back? Um, well, um, this has been uh, beyond our, our hopes. Uh, we set sail on Saturday. Uh, my first sense was when I came on board and the crew were just so excited to start seeing people. Um, we've been talking to the guests who are just over the moon. Um, this is important. It's, it's just the first cruise, but it's a symbolic one because um, it shows that we're starting. We have the second cruise out of the United States just starting this Friday and another ship. So we're back and uh, looks like we're heading to, uh, to be back in good shape. 
It feels like steps towards normalcy. Having said that, most people will say there's no way going back. We are a change world and society. So how do you do it safely for both your crew and your passengers? I've spent time on one of those massive cruise ships. There's a lot of people in their huge ships, but it's a lot of people in what is a relatively small contained space. Well, you know, 15 months ago, being in a contained space was a concern Because remember, we didn't have vaccines. We didn't even have testing. Uh, If you think back, the CDC was advising against wearing face masks. Mm -hmm. Um, We were really in in a bad world. And over the last 15 months, we've had the opportunity working with with, um, specialists, with experts, to really look at what would make it safer. And all the things um, that were concerned 15 months ago and made us voluntarily stop operating, now work in our favor. So unlike going into a movie theater or a restaurant or a theme park, we know everybody who's coming on board. And we can take the time to make sure that they're vaccinated, tested, uh, etc. So uh, on this ship, uh, on all of our ships, every crew member is vaccinated. Um, um, all the adults have to be vaccinated on, on this ship. Um, we have some children who aren't eligible for the vaccine. Mm-hmm. But the net result is that 99% of the on board is vaccinated. So that's the first line of defense. But the second one, as, as you pointed out before, um, people aren't as much worried about getting sick as they're worried about somebody else getting sick and mourning their vacation and them being quarantined or what have you. Mm-hmm. So we set up the procedures. We've um, set up procedures with the public health system, with hospitals, with everything else. So if we have a case, we can do contact tracing in a way you can't do on shore. We can isolate in a way you can't do on shore. And so a case doesn't become an outbreak. It just becomes a few people who are set aside, flown home, and everybody else carries on with their vacation. And that's you can't do that on land. On land, those people will just continue to infect other people, and um, you have no way to separate them out. And that process is working, Richard? I mean, have you, you've had some cases, is that correct? I thought I read something about some kids or something, but it's happened and the, the systems have kicked into place and everything's worked. Exactly. Um, by the way, remember, although this is our first cruise out of the United States, we've carried 150 or 175,000 mm-hmm. people around the world during the period. And we've had cases because you can't eliminate it. You can't eliminate it on land, and you can't eliminate it at sea. But um, we've had a few cases, and just like the ones you mentioned, they were isolated, no muss, no fuss, didn't bother everybody else's vacation, and we flew them home. Um, and that's really the objective is right. keep the number very low and then take care of the, that low number. From what I understand, you shared with our, I think, colleagues on the TV side that you expect most ships to be sailing by the end of the year. Are you, though, Richard, anticipating that the spread of the Delta variant will slow down your ability to reopen and reach all the ports that you were in pre-pandemic? Well, I think we keep watching all of the things, including the variants and including the Delta variant, which today is the one that we're most focused on. But remember, a couple months ago, we were equally focused on the Alpha variant. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But we are watching it. And we will continue to get the right guidance. Uh, it does appear, from everything we're seeing, that the vaccines that we have here in the United States are effective 
including against the Delta variant. So the trick is to get more people vaccinated. And by having cruises where people are vaccinated and are freer to function, it also motivates people to get vaccinated. So right. uh, I, I feel that's good too. Richard, just got about 35 seconds left here. Carnival kind of rocked the industry on an investor front. They said they're going to be selling as much as half a billion dollars in stock. Do you folks at Royal Caribbean, you have all the capital rate, capital that you need at this point to get through the rest of the pandemic and just got about 25 seconds? Uh, I think we've, we've expressed confidence in our financial position uh, and we've given no indication that we think that there's any need for any change. Well, good luck. Enjoy Mexico and safe sailing. And it's good to uh, hear things getting back uh, more and more to uh, a normal way, a post-pandemic way, and in a cautious way. Richard Fain, Chairman and CEO of Royal Caribbean Cruises, joining us on the phone from Costa Maya, Mexico, on the Celebrity Edge. You're listening to Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So just about 13 minutes left in today's trading session. We are headed towards the closing bell on this Tuesday. Let's get to it with Dave Gilreath. He is Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at the Money Management Firm for Registered Investment Advisors. We're talking about innovative portfolios. He joins us on the phone from Indianapolis. Dave, nice to have you here. It's been an interesting day. We've seen a fair amount of market rotation throughout the day. We're off our highs and lows. Little changes on those major market averages. Where are we? What's the what's the market driver uh, in your view right now? Hi, Carol. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate sure. it. Um, yeah, we're from Indianapolis, the uh, you know financial mecca of the Midwest, right? But uh, as far as the, the stock market goes, you know, it, there is a rotation. In fact, uh, Dave Wilson was just on earlier. He's talking about this broad index that Strategis has, Inside Out, I guess, is doing well and showing that. The whole market really is doing well, but it's not cheap you know, mm-hmm. by by any stretch. I mean, it's kind of hard to measure, I think, uh, because we all know the the numerator, the price, but we don't really know the the denominator. So, in comparisons to you know last year, are kind of worthless because last year was such an anomaly. But you know, right now we have a very low VIX, and uh, it seems to me there's probably a lot of second quarter window dressing going on today and tomorrow, and you know, it's it's a kind of a dull market, and the old <laughs> saying is never short a dull market, right? So, um, you know, the the forward returns. I think Tom this morning, Keen actually was talking about how the S and P five hundred returned ten and a half percent for thirty years, which is very unusual. I mean, that's a you know really high number. And going forward, they might not be as high, but they they don't really have to be as high to still have a to still have really good returns in equities. So, are, are we trading on fundamentals? Are we trading on all of the cash that's out there and the Fed easing? Are we trading on an economic recovery after the market falling off because of the pandemic? No, we're definitely trading on an economic recovery. Um, I mean, people do have a lot of money in the banks and in their bank accounts, and they have very low debt. So, 
the Fed's friendly, and it seems to me like things look pretty good for the stock market. We don't really, in our work uh, at Innovative, we don't try to, we're not top-down kind of people looking at, you know, the mm-hmm. market in general or sectors or whatever. we uh, been managing money for a long time, like 20 years, but we just started Innovative about three years ago with a couple of mutual funds, one being our dividend performers fund, we call it. Um, and we, we basically decided, let's try to, the Dividend Achievers Index is a great index of companies that have raised their dividends 10 years in a row, and there's 350 of those, and then we kind of winnow them down and screen them to look for the 50 with the lowest downside risk. Mm-hmm. And And so we're not you know, that the scoring system, we don't really pick the stocks, the stock kind of pick us. So we're not looking for trying to predict what the next great sector is or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at your dividend performers fund, I mean, it's KLA, KLA Corp, Caterpillar, ITT, 3M, Illinois Toolworks. I mean, it's a lot of kind of old economy to some extent uh, companies. But as you said, these are companies that pay dividends. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, and they've paid them and raised them for yeah. more than a decade at least. So, and right now we only own seven of the eleven sectors in the S and P, and the biggest mm-hmm. weighting is industrials. It's like forty percent uh, is industrial. It's been that way for right. more than a couple of years. Are you uh, so? Are you anticipating, in terms of the industrial space too, that with infrastructure legislation working its way through Congress, that that's going to be a boon also to some of those names? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad we're in that space. It's uh, interesting because in 2019-2020, uh, the whole, I mean, everything was all about technology, right, and the right. FANG stocks, and if you didn't own the FANG stocks, you couldn't do anything. And uh, But we still had, we were loaded with tech, with uh, industrials then, but we still outperformed the S&P 500. So, uh, and this year, thankfully, the, the industrials are leading the charge, and you know, so we're having a good year so far this year as well. But the infrastructure bill will help. I mean, that's you know, that's long-term money. I mean, that's you know, the bill passes, but it takes a long time for that money to kind of flow into the system. So. Yeah. No, I no, I understand. In terms of <laughs> if you're waiting for it for tomorrow, uh, don't hold your breath. Let's talk about some of the companies you like. Paychex is one of them. P A Y X. It is up about 15% so far this year. This is a company that's working with smaller businesses, medium-sized businesses. It's all about payroll processing. Right. They're the, uh, a big payroll processing company, and uh, hiring you know, should continue to go up. I mean, there's, what, 9 million jobs, I guess, open in the U.S. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, the advantage, in my opinion, to them is that they deal almost exclusively with U.S. employers. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. is by far on the fastest recovery track, you know, much faster than the rest of the world, which is parts of the world are still a mess as far as COVID goes. So, and they pay a solid dividend, um, over two and a half percent. They've raised a 10 years straight and they hit a new high today. Yeah, they did. Um, at about 108. So I, th- I think they're in a good space. All right. Another name that you like is Rockwell Automation. Uh, and this plays into the industrial space and, and manufacturing, which we are starting to see come back and especially as facilities ramp up to meet, uh, right. increased demand. Right, right. Yeah, and they are a global leader in industrial automation. I mean, their their tagline is to make factories work smarter and more efficiently, and mm-hmm. that's exactly what they do. Um, I mean, people have been talking about a tight labor market here. I'm not sure that the market is as tight or if it's really just sort of a labor dislocation. But, um, you know, there is a need for skilled labor, and it's forcing all of these employers to improve their productivity, which is right in Rockwell's wheelhouse. So. 
they've uh, also raised their dividend for over 10 years. Um, they hit a new high last week. They're now, I don't know, a few bucks, few bucks off their high, but still, mm-hmm. they've had a really good year so far. Yeah, exactly. So. 283.75, that 52-week high, uh, or that recent high was 289 and change. So just a, about six bucks or so, or five and a half bucks off of that. Uh, Striker. And this certainly plays into healthcare. I mean, these are the company that does so many different implants, orthopedic implants. Right, right. So uh, hips and knees and all that good <laughs> stuff. And uh, COVID, you know, slowed all all of those joint replacements down and all the quote unquote elective surgeries. Which to me, if you can't walk, that's you know, I don't know if that's elective, but mm-hmm. uh, but the baby boomers are aging, and I mean, I'm a baby boomer, and demographics are certainly on the side of striker. Uh, and really, because of this pandemic shutdown, there's a there's a lot of pent up demand for new knees and hips and things like that. It's in, um, you know, I'm going back to something you said earlier about with Dave Dave Wilson when he was talking about the broad based rally. And as you pointed out, you're not in every one of the S and P sectors. I, I want to go back to you are below index weighting in technology. Is that because you don't believe that that makes sense longer term, or is it just it's gotten a little expensive? Well, it's just the fact that the screening tools that we use didn't lead us into technology stocks. And that's mm. probably because uh, they were relatively expensive uh, compared to other you know, equities in that space. And we, we have a handful of like KLA as one of our bigger positions, um, and we've had that you know, since the beginning. But we're not trying to pick sectors. Um, we're just picking the stocks that fall through the screens so and we only rebalance two times a year so we're not uh, we kind of buy and hold things for quite a while right you're not moving around what about in terms of exposure to consumers at this point how do you see it is there a play there for you uh there are one of our bigger positions also is target Mm -hmm. and uh we like target quite a lot we've owned it a long time it's our best performer Uh, Mm -hmm. we're up like 160 or 70 percent on that since we bought it uh and it absolutely that's uh our second biggest Waiting is in the consumer uh, type stock. So, uh, yeah, we the consumer obviously is in great shape, and uh, they're itching to get out and spend money, and they they are spending money and will be. I mean, you had the uh, the chairman of Royal Caribbean on just a few minutes ago, right, and he's right. you know he's sailing away and got a ship full of people with him. So, are you being defensive at all in your positioning? No, I would not okay. say we are defensive at all. Doesn't I feel like no. that way. It really does feel like the reopening and getting back to more normal. But I do wonder, are you concerned at all? We talk about the Delta variant. We're seeing it uh, certainly create some havoc overseas. Are you at all concerned that that could ultimately at some point have some impact on uh, the U.S. market once again, the U.S. economy? Yeah. I, I mean, I've been in this business a long time. The Dow was below 1000 when I started, and we've had horrible news every day that I've woken up, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, yes, I mean, it's a, it could be a concern, but people that are, they've shown now that if you've had the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, that it seems like you have, you know, protection for a long, long time, you know, maybe lifetime is what the article said today, but yeah. um, so I think as more vaccinations happen around, around the world, you're going to it's going to be less and less of a problem. Hey, before we go, just got about 30, 40 seconds here. There was something in your notes that really caught my attention. It's something I've been thinking a lot about the lack of babies being born in the two biggest economies, the U.S. and China. It's not a problem for tomorrow, maybe not in a year or so, but down the road, that's going to be something that's going to be uh, rather impactful. Just quickly. Oh, it'll be very impactful. The, uh, I mean, the, the two biggest economies, we're not having enough babies, you know, and, and the U.S. doesn't have as big of a problem because we have a lot of uh, immigration, mm-hmm. 
but China does not have immigration, and I mean, at least historically, they haven't. So, uh, you know, an economy can only grow as fast as as the population and the productivity goes. And so, if you don't have population, you got to really increase your productivity. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. What a great conversation! We covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much, Dave Gilreath. He's managing director, chief investment officer at the uh, money management firm Innovative Portfolios. Joining us on the phone from Indianapolis. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.